Welcome to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is your host, Jeff Pardo, and it is my pleasure to welcome Amar Salahier to this month's edition. Amar is one of the most prolific and successful entrepreneurs in the MedTech ecosystem. He has founded and sold companies such as Sadra, Maya, Apama, and Via Shifamed has established an engine which continues to generate new and interesting companies. Amr, it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, it's an honor to be to be on the podcast, and thank you for uh, making this opportunity uh, available to me. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. So first, uh, you know, I, I love to get a bit about uh, people's backgrounds and, you know, where they grew up, their interests uh, at a young age, and then sort of how medicine and science and engineering started to become of interest. So I wonder if you could share some 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 of your background. Sure. So I grew up um, in the Middle East uh, between Beirut and Damascus. And in 82, I went to boarding school in south of France, and um, and I was doing an international baccalaureate at the time. And I was looking for schools. I really was interested in medicine, um, but I was also very interested in engineering. And I ended up being at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, which would have, it still has one of the best biomedical engineering programs in the country. And it had, you know, a rare thing. It had an undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering. And that's that's really where I got started. I, I quickly abandoned the medicine, sort of the being a physician part. I think I wasn't really, um, didn't have the, what it took to become a physician. I don't think I have the the disposition for that. But I was certainly very keen on, on being an engineer. And, and that experience there was uh, really fundamental to my learning um, and, and getting that degree and ultimately getting hired uh, into industry. And did you have a particular uh, focus of interest in in biomedical engineering was it sort of an always cardiovascular from the get-go or what what were some of the, some of the early interests of yours so i i uh, my my advisor and throughout my school was uh, dr dominique duran who, who was really an eminent sort of uh researcher in the neural control uh in, in the applied neural control lab at case western um, so we did did a lot of stuff related to to electronics um, and uh, action potentials and stimulation mm. and so forth, which is not what I've when when I got into industry. I re, I was just looking for a job and and, and ACS was advertising for they, and they didn't need a, a permanent residency. So I was really attracted to that, obviously, because the only one. And I had no clue what a catheter was. I had no clue where mm. Santa Clara was. Um, and as I was interviewing, I figured it out that was close to San Francisco. I got really excited. Um, ultimately, I got a, a an internship with ACS, and they, of course, they're the pioneering company doing uh, angioplasty catheters. Ultimately, became Guidant, um, became part of Guidant. Um, so that's that's really how I got started. I was just needing to get any job, and I was lucky enough to uh, to to be essentially get interviewed by Liz McDermott from ACS. She was visiting. And, uh, you know, ACS at that time had become part of Eli Lilly. And, uh, you know, I got the internship and, and eventually it became a full-time job. So, you know, yeah. things worked out for me. Uh, and, and that experience at ACS, is, as many people have told you, is very formative. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. You you just hear these places that were such, you know, uh, training grounds for a lot of the great entrepreneurs in our space. And it, ACS is definitely one of those. What? What was it about ACS or what what were the things that sort of you learned while you were there that that have stayed with you? 
I think what the one thing that ACS did really well is they they put a lot of effort into people um, because most of us came from you know there was no industry there were the industry was just being born basically it was being developed um, through through you know the the ACS people and the people who left ACS to start other companies but they put a lot of effort in training people and teaching us uh, everything that we could learn uh, be it on the physiology side on the mechanics or quality systems, you name it. Uh, they were very generous in in, in, in promoting and, uh, you know, providing the opportunity for us to be exposed as much as possible, talk to physicians and things like that. So that piece stayed with me because that really um, allowed us to learn and evolve and be interested in, in what we're developing things and what for and, and, and how it affect patients, how it affect physicians and how the business part of it uh, sort of mattered. The other piece that really, I think there was still a lot of entrepreneurship sort of mentality uh, as part of ACS. You know, often the, the, the some of the early guys would leave to go and start other companies. So that continued to be interesting. And, uh, you know, at the time at ACS, there was no email, there's no mobile, mobile phones. I mean, there were pagers that were just starting to sort of be used. And the way people spoke, you know, wanted to reach each other, they would go on an intercom and say, you know, john smith dial you know 412 whatever and then you would pick up that extension but every once in a while you'd hear you know john smith gone and i would ask the question what what where is he gone what happened did they get fired and it turns out that most people when they didn't get fired they actually left to to be part of another startup or to start their own startup and so that that spirit of you know being a startup and, and you know wanting to be and, and being acs was one of the big successes of a startup in the medical space one of the first ones was always so i would say um going on as part of the culture and so between those two things um those things you know they they don't leave you that's part of who you become the interest in startups entrepreneurship and also focusing on people and making sure they understand the mission was that um, curious? Just you know, coming into that environment, had you thought m much about you know entrepreneurship and being an entrepreneur? Was that kind of part of the plan, or was that really born while you were at ACS? I would say my background and and the region and so forth. Most people people didn't want to be employees. They always thought that they would have their own business. So I do come from a mm -hmm. background uh, where. Uh, being an entrepreneur of, of any kind is sort of what's kind of expected from you. Mm. You ultimately have your own setup, you whatever it turns out to be. Um, it wasn't, an, you know, there were some engineers that that did this in my, you know, in my family, um, but most of them were, you know, were doing development um, and, uh, and and trading and so forth. Uh, so there was not a lot of medicine in 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 my family, but so that's I, I sort of took the medicine and the engineering and and, the, and that's the direction I took. Mm -hmm. So so you go from ACS, and I think the next move was to cardiothoracic systems, and I, could, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that move and you know kind of what inspired it, and 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 also what were some of the key things you. You know, you 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 did it at, at cardiothoracic and and the key lessons. So cardiothoracic was, you know, I was one of the first engineers to be hired. I think I was engineer number three or something like that. Um, and it was an exciting time because it was very few of us, and we were trying to figure out how to do beating heart surgery. Uh, and there was a big competition between uh, CTS and Heartport at the time. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and ultimately we were successful we 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 got the product where where we got it um but there's there's a really fundamental lesson that i learned from from cts you know um everybody assumed at the time that whatever that people had done for angioplasty catheters uh, with acs that that other physicians automatically would sort of jump on those kinds of systems you know the invasive single use kind of products um and one sort of interesting lesson that i that i you know, comes with me to to this day from CTS experience is that that environment was for cardiac surgeons and the system for cardiac surgeons at the time uh, and the nursing staff that supports it is really was well established. Um, the behaviors were already set. They they were doing bypass surgery. They were doing valve surgery, uh, and the systems were well honed. People got to to know what they got to do. They got skills that were really important. Um, and they and they ran it. So that behavior was entrenched. And and to go and tell them, we're going to give you a set of tools that after each use, you throw them in the garbage was really a, a challenging thing. And, and that was the lesson that I got from that is you cannot assume that different physicians will behave the same. Hmm. Um, there's different cultures and different value systems um, and, and changing behavior is a lot harder than than it seems and certainly harder than than really designing the product itself mm. so when we came and and we had a you know we had a retractor for for minimally you know for uh for, for the chest and, and a stabilizer and all those kinds of things but some of them they still had to be made out of metal um we hadn't quite molded them yet uh, and so we we had machined them out of, of aluminum and then we were showing them to the european physicians at the time and and we were telling him, yes, after you use it, you take it. And we were giving the demo and we dropped it in the garbage and it made its big clunk. And the staff looked, mm. their eyes were popping out and they were like, these guys are crazy. They would never do that, of course, because they always reuse the same, you know, um, set of tools. They clean them and prepare them for next surgery. And then there's different sets, one being sterilized, one being used kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So that, that mindset um, where the, the nurse sort of when when she didn't think I was looking, she would pull it pulled it out of the garbage and we're gonna clean it and reuse it or whatever she was gonna do. That lesson was really important. And then it, it told me that at least what, what I was interested in really pushing the, the the technology and the minimally invasive approaches, that is really better suited to stick with the interventional cardiologists, interventional electrophysiologists. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot harder to convince other surgeons to really adopt the same mindset they, they it's a it's a harder thing to do yeah why do you think that is i mean I, it's been totally my experience as well but I, I don't think i've ever sort of you know delved into why uh there's such a difference between specialties well i think because when physicians go and learn it sets their mindset for a long time for years and it's not easy uh, usually the people who adopt things that are completely different are likely to be the younger physicians. Once they hone their skills, for them to toss away the skills, because a lot of what we're doing often is developing a tool that makes uh, skill less important, meaning somebody who's less skilled can do a really good job because you gave them a really good tool to you know to, to do the procedure. Mm -hmm. And so the the car intervention the, the the cardiac surgeons they they hone those skills that depended on a set of tools that that were reusable. And the staff around them, all they do is prepare the tools for the next case. Mm -hmm. And they're handing the tools one by one. They, they call the tool, they give it to them, they take it back. And it's all about these tools. So once that training takes place, it's very 
hard to undo and, and people don't want to go back and learn again. Um, uh, and so it sets them in that mindset and it's, it's very hard. And so for the interventionalists, there was no, you know, other devices. The only devices that they got experience with were long catheters that ultimately had to be thrown away. So it was easier for that for that to get established. Um, but once people get set in their way, it's it's really, I think it's very hard for them to admit career, go ahead and change everything. Some people do, but that's not the majority. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. So from here, indeed, you go more into the in interventional world. And I wonder if you could talk about that. And and ultimately, you know, you, you, um, you get involved with, I think, some of the companies that have really, you know, shaped what you've started to do at Shifamed, which we'll get into. But I wonder if you could take us through kind of this journey into more of the interventional world. So I wanted to do my own startup and I started tinkering around. I was in my house by myself, uh, but I also needed to earn money. My own ideas really at the time didn't pan out. So I was working and consulting for others. One of them was Fred Kostravi. And, you know, um, I had a started putting a team together. I was consulting for a variety of companies, but the most important sort of customer was Fred. It was, he had just started in Bowel Protection Inc. Uh, and we designed a filter wire for him, me and my team and in my house. And ultimately we got up uh, into a facility in a clean room. He took, he took it to Columbia uh, and treated uh, patients, uh, you know, used the device all over the, the body and, and came back with a big success and ultimately convinced his board to essentially buy my company. And so all my team became employees of EPI and, uh, and a year later uh, we sell to Boston Scientific. So that was sort of the journey that we took. Uh, it was really a consulting ego that turned into a, the acquisition of my company into a startup uh, that became part of uh, in, uh, Boston Scientific. Um, and that was a, a great success uh, for all of us. Uh, the product worked well, it's still on the market today, doing well. Um, and then it's, you know, spawned other sort of similar devices for in different indications. Um, that success really, uh, you know, brought me back to Interventional. Um, and I, I really felt very comfortable going in that direction where the technology and evolution technology can, can take place fast. And, and you can have early success and, and great exit. So uh, that was really, I would say, most important moment for, for me in my career. Yeah, that must have been, I mean, a, a tremendous thrill to see something that you, you know, I mean, I, I recognize you were no doubt doing similar things at cardiothoracic and ACS, but to have something that, you know, was really your baby and to still have it used today, I mean, that's got to be a tremendous uh a tremendous sense of satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was interesting because we when we started, uh, we had there was others who had started doing similar things, and um, and we were forced to come up with you know slightly different, differentiated you know a solution, and it turned out to be uh, in terms of filters, it was the first one that ended up being on the market. So we actually accelerated uh, past some of the others that were acquired before us. Mm. Um, relative to, to filters themselves and uh and the lesson for me on that one was um uh, if you if you execute effectively if you're able to identify weaknesses or make improvements on what currently exists um you know you don't have to be the first to market uh you can catch up sometimes 
and still have you know a lot of market share and 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 a lot of interest from from potential you know commercial large commercial organizations like Boston Scientific. Yeah, and and from there you actually stayed at at Boston for several years, right? So what was it like, you know, having been in this ultra entrepreneurial uh, stage? And then being back into in a larger company was that uh, how did that feel? Was that difficult? And or what are anything you pulled away from being kind of back in a larger company? Yeah, I mean, this was a really a unique opportunity because this is a product that we, we initiated from the very beginning. Um, we became part of the acquisition, but ultimately, Boston commercialized the device, and that experience of you know scaling and being involved with the commercial effort. Um, uh, to some extent, as an R and D person, was super interesting, rewarding, and revealing. Right? Um, you know, person who's technical, mostly doing uh, bench work, animal studies, and things like that. But ultimately, getting to the clinic, um, and then really understanding how a large organization essentially takes something and scales it and commercializes that. That seeing that or experiencing that was was really the reason I stayed. And also I wanted to see it through. Um, and that was really invaluable. Um, and that's another learning for me uh, in terms of my my career of of seeing how that takes place. Yeah. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, we, when you see that, you understand what you want to do to next time around so that you're successful in these commercializations. But ultimately, that's what we're about. It's about really bringing those products to the, to the clinic and commercializing them. Yeah. So... Yeah, I stayed long enough to see that, and then I was afraid to to grow roots in a large organization. And as soon as we finished that mission, I I was on to figure, trying to figure out what I want to do next, and and not be part of a large organization, because right. I really enjoyed you know building our organization, selling it, and and that was thrilling. And I didn't want to just continue to be part of a large one. I wanted to sort of do the cycle again. What do you think they did? Uh, and I want to get to the next stage um, as you move into uh, Sandra. But um, what do you think they did well in terms of kind of integrating the company and commercializing Embolic? And and what were the things you maybe you looked at and you said, oh well, if I, if I was going to do this again, I would do it, you know, a different way. I don't know. I can't think of anything they didn't do. Correctly, I mean, it was a super successful effort, and at the time, Boston did not have a stent, uh, a drug eluding stent, and they were they were developing the plexitaxel uh, stent, the taxis, um, but it wasn't there yet. So it was it was finishing the trials. It was not commercial yet, and so and they they needed something to to essentially um, hold them over until that this product would come. And embolic protection turned out to be different, differentiated, interesting um, technology. And also it had a, a very appealing side to it. You know, uh, when you, as a user, a physician, you put the device in and you, when you remove it at the, the, the end of the procedure and you catch a bunch of clot, you're really excited. It's like you went fishing and caught a big fish and they would run around and show their colleagues from one cath lab to that, look what we caught, look what we did. Um, and that, that effort and the and the, the sort of interesting and rewarding side of it and the technology being you know working so well, it allowed that sales force to continue to be engaging with their customers and and sell products, not just, of course, once you have the filter that they could sell other things as well, in spite of the fact that they were still waiting for that stent to come through. And 
you know, within a year or whatever, after we launched the filter wire, they, they launched the, the, the stand and that was really successful to me, how that organization rallied around a new product, made it successful, allowed them to get a lot of airtime and a lot of uh, physical presence in the cat lab. Really, it tells you how sophisticated and efficient and opportunistic, uh, I would say the Boston uh, commercialization effort is. Mm. Um, and that was, it was interesting to see and experience. Yeah, no, that's great to hear because I think as we both know, it's, it's, you know, so much time is spent on acquiring these new technologies and sometimes where they, the, 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 you know, it hits uh, problems is in that integration. So that, that's, um, that's impressive. So then, so then you move into the next phase and I'm curious what you were considering, you know, how, how you became um, kind of interested in improving um, uh, transcatheter valves and, and also. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it was, I needed to do a new company and I, I quit not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but at the time also about that time, there was the first valve placement sort of conventional, you know, with Alain Fibier and, and Philip Bonhoeffer before him, they were, they were starting to essentially implant uh, stents that had valves inside and PVT was the, the, you know, the first company that, that got sold. Um, and, and they were not sold at the time when I started uh, Sadra and I was looking at the mitral valve, Don Bame and Paul Smith were, were, you know, started mitral line and, and, you know, they were trying to think that maybe I could be part of that effort. Um, I got sort of really concerned about the mitral given how complex it is as a, as a, a anatomy. Um, and I felt like there's still a lot of things that needed to, to be improved on the aortic side. So I decided to go for the, you know, percutaneous aortic valve with Sadra. Um, and, and that was, I'm glad I made that choice, uh, because the hurdle was manageable compared to mitral. Cause even today, it, the mitral is not completely solid, at least in my mind. Um, so, so that's how I decided to go after the aortic valve. And I just... You know, again, I was we were not first, um, but we needed to do, you know, make significant improvements. So and we focused on a few things. One of them was the ability to make, a, you know, a, a really good seal um, around the, the valve so it doesn't leak. And also the ability to be able to reposition it if you didn't position in the right spot. Um, and so we had a lockable system that basically you can lock and unlock and, and reposition or, re, you know, put back in the sheet if you need to. That's how we started the company. And uh, it was a complex technical effort, um, um, but ultimately we were successful to selling it to, to Boston and, and they commercialized it for a while. So, um, I'm, you know, I felt like I needed to do something interesting and different. And the valve was really the, the, the thing that was really exciting at the time. And uh, and that's, that's the decision that, uh, you know, that's why I made that choice. Yeah. So leading into Shifa Med and that, I wonder if you could describe kind of the because to me this is something that's really unique within our our landscape. I mean, you know, and to me it's not really an an incubator in the in the classic sense. I mean, you have lots of companies under the Shifamed um, umbrella, but you it, you know, you're these companies are going much further than they would in, in any kind of incubator like setting. So I'm curious, kind of you know, what the idea was you had in starting Shifamed and how it's evolved. And um, maybe you could just yeah, talk, talk about it in, in, in terms of, you know, maybe other models you had, you had seen or, or maybe yeah. you know, learned from. 
Sure. So, I mean, I modeled a lot from a lot of support and, and watching Fred Kostrabi really uh, do what he he does so well with with his partner, Amar Sohini. Mm-hmm. And they have established Incept and, and their model was to really put a lot of the IP in Incept and license it to the different startup that they do. So I definitely followed that approach. I think what we're doing a bit differently is, you know, it's all one campus and there's a shared sort of activities that that's, you know, does a lot of the back office across the portfolio. But the reason I started Chief Ahmed, um, you know, I'm going to go back to the beginning, was that I, you know, by the time I did Sadra, I realized that I really enjoyed so much building the teams and, you know, starting afresh with new technology and try to get to the finish line. I mean, that process to me is still the most rewarding thing. Coming up with a new idea, you know, uh, working with, with a new team that really brings it to, to its completion. Um, but what I saw myself do uh, when I was doing Sadra is that I took a lot of time just infrastructure, like setting up, you know, who's going to be my CFO or a part-time CFO, who's going to be my admin, what facilities we have to do. So a lot of time that was spent by me as a CEO, one uh, while I was by myself, just doing basic infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that part felt like a, a waste. I felt like, you know, I had done it already for when we did EPI, when we did Sobek, my, my, my consulting firm um, that became EPI. Um, and then I did it again for Sadra. And so I felt like I really, I wanted to combine the, the, what, what Fred and, and Amar had done uh, with Incept, but really put an infrastructure around it so that you don't waste so much time when time is so precious at the beginning of a new venture, doing basic infrastructure mm-hmm. so that you can quickly get into doing design iterations, talking to physicians, making sure the business model fits and making sure you have a good uh, startup that's likely to succeed. Um, and that's really why we started Chief Ahmed is to really reduce the burden of, let's call them the basics. Um, and and it started with, you know, modestly again at the house, um, and ultimately moved out um, with one company being a focus, um, but other things going on in the background. It was a struggle. A lot of investors don't like the idea for somebody to work on multiple things. So it had to evolve and had to mature. Um, at one point, some of my investors said it made me resign from my own companies and wait until we finish one, which was a palm uh, and then and sell it before we get involved with some other things. So it took a while for it to really take the shape that it is today. Um, but the main incentive really was to reduce the, 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 the non-productive work and allow things to happen more efficiently and quickly. And that's really the reason we started Chief from it. Um, yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And, um, you know what, because we, you know, we've seen a lot of, um, models kind of come and go, what's, what's made this really sustainable in, in your view versus, you know, some of the other, um, you know, again, for lack of a better word, incubators that have that have been here but have not been able to have the level of sustainability as what you've done. I think we got lucky. Listen, every every time we sell a company, I feel like we're uh, at least part of it is luck. Um, and so success to me is really if you have success, then it's a lot easier to do just about anything. So that's got to be one of the reasons that it's it's worked out because we're able to sell the companies earlier on. Um, the other piece is that um, we put a lot of effort in developing everything around what we were doing. So our culture generally 
at Chief Ahmed and the Chief Ahmed companies is to internalize as much as reasonable and as appropriate um, and not look to immediately farm things out. Now, we always farm out and do contract and leverage contract manufacturers, but at the appropriate times for the appropriate things. I think ultimately the the uh, what we'd like to do is to make sure we control our destiny, meaning you you final assemblies are always built within. If we have to design fixtures, develop process, we get them done uh, internally uh, with support from outside often. Um, but we don't want to be dependent on others where it, they may not have the same urgency. They may not have the same priorities or their priorities shift. So we always want to, um, anything that's difficult, anything that where quality matters a lot, we, we want to be in control of it. Um, and so that also means often that you, you're going to have to have a, you know, a sophisticated lab, engineers and techs working very close together, and then ultimately a, a control environment room, a clean room uh, to build your products. And it also means you have to have uh, sophisticated uh, bench testing apparatus set up for each design, for each company, for each project, because that's just as important as the product. If you're not able to understand how it works, and typically these models that, that we do simulated use and testing uh, with and on are evolving as well as the design, right? You can't just, you know, at the beginning it's modest and not sophisticated, but as the product gets more sophisticated, you make that testing, you know, take it to the next level. And so, um, because you, you cannot just be in the animal study every day. That's just not feasible. It's not practical. It, it wastes too much money and time. So I think to me, those are the, the, the key ingredients for what we do. We try to internalize the key elements, the key processes, the key design activities, so we can control them. Uh, we, we put a lot of effort into testing and the right test, testing models. Um, and of course you do a lot of animal studies and so forth. Um, but but we, we wanna be, and we wanna make sure that the teams are really, um, a big thing that we do with Shifamed is we want the teams to be focused. We don't like people to work on multiple projects simultaneously. There's a few people who may do that, but it's on rare occasions. I think that the normal behavior for each team is to be dedicated to their mission. Uh, they're also, uh, they should be empowered. They should be autonomous, right? So they're making decisions. If they make a poor decision, they quickly understand what it is. We believe also smaller teams are more efficient because there's just less bureaucracy and less you know, miscommunication. Um, so that those are so to me those are the key ingredients for the reason that we've been able to sustain the effort of Shifamet yeah. is allowing these teams to to be well funded and for them to take the risks that they need and not be dependent on others or each other. Um, um, so each you know each company uh, can leverage and and get support uh, from others, advice, but they're not really sharing engineers. They're not really sharing talent. They'll get uh, somebody who say, "Hey, look, we use this vendor. It was great." or I recommend something like this for you guys. Here's what we've done. You can see it and leverage that. But they're not sitting there, you know, double tasking and so forth. Yeah. Um, uh, and we want that. What makes a startup work in the, uh, you know, generally, um, especially in Silicon Valley, successful. We want to emulate that, right? And what what makes startups efficient is that they're 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 driven and they're focused and they're not really big and they make the most progress in the earlier stages. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're trying to keep that element of what makes startups successful and not change it. The only thing that, that we do that's a bit different is that those shared resources, the back office, you know, finance and accounting, human resources, 
uh, facilities, IT, intellectual property. That's a single shared team that that really takes care of the whole portfolio. Because mm-hmm. those things, we need them to succeed. But a, a a a large organization that acquires one of our companies does not need more accounting people or more HR people, right? Mm-hmm. Anything related to the product uh, are dedicated resources. Um, anything related to sort of the back office, those can be shared and you don't need to have five ways to do a PO or financial reports. Yeah. So that is really the, the, the way that we've established Chief Ahmed. And, and I think that what differentiates us and allows us to be uh, more effective. Yeah. And I would say another thing that's really differentiated you is just your knack for picking markets and technologies that are just, you know, very well positioned in terms of, you know, their, um, you know, the the attractiveness for potential acquirers, the clinical unmet needs. And maybe could you talk a little bit about your methodology for, for doing that and, and why you've been so successful in, in choosing those clinical needs and, and then ultimately the technologies that can best serve them? Yeah, I mean, um, it's a good question. So what we do, what we try to do all the time is to make, we don't, we want to go into areas where the world believes these areas are really important, that either it's an existing market, so nobody sort of can challenge that, here's the market, it's there, or the world is convinced this market is going to exist, right? Because you can't really, you know, sometimes you're in innovation and the market may not be there, but it's starting to show, it's, you know, how big it is and how important it is. So we don't want to be in a situation where we're doing a bit more of the science. We want to be doing more of the engineering execution. We want to be in a situation where if you do your engineering work and you're successful at the engineering activity, people are going to say, okay, it's a win. You don't want to be in a scenario where you've done the work, you've done the engineering, it's successful, but you know nobody's ever done it before and the physiology doesn't work out, that the procedure doesn't work out. So we would rather go after... You know, if I accomplish the following, it's a, there's a clear benefit uh, as opposed to I'm doing pure science and I'll do this thing. And maybe maybe the, the body responds and it's actually good for patients. We, and we don't know that that's the part we want to avoid. So we we don't want to have Nobel Prizes. We really want to do engineering execution. Um, and, and the other thing that we do is try to look backwards, meaning if we succeed, we would like to have multiple potential acquires that are likely to be part of the process for, for a transaction. If there's not that competition taking place, um, then it's going to be problematic. It, you you won't be having, it's harder to have the, the consistent exit uh, or really be able to say, I'll exit within this, you know, when I accomplish the following. So that is really a big part of what we do is really look for, because ultimately uh, for us to have an exit, our customers really are the big, large corporations. And we need to understand that they're going to be there for us and that they're going to compete with each other. Because if they don't compete with each other, they can wait, which means, you know, taking it longer and longer, which means your exit is delayed, you're diluted more, and and, and investors are not necessarily so pleased because um, they have a shorter horizon. So by assuring that there is a multiple potential acquires, I think that really solves a lot of the problems. So we look for that upfront from the beginning. Uh, as we're starting a company in an effort. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, something I really wrestle with as an investor, I'm curious how you look at it as, um, you know, an entrepreneur and an operator is, you know, the the willingness to invest in things that are really new mechanisms 
of action versus things that we know work, whether we know they work surgically and we're trying to do them now minimally invasively um, or or just improving on something that, you know, is out there, is working, but can be a lot better. And, you know, maybe it's my age in this industry, but but I've probably gravitated more towards the things where we sort of understand what the mechanism of action is and we're really trying to do it in a much better way, whether that's minimally invasive or whatever, versus taking that real novel mechanism of action. And maybe it's because of the uncertainty in the regulatory pathway or the reimbursement or whatever. But I'm curious how you balance that in your kind of selection process and your willingness to take that kind of big, you know, big swing for an entirely new way of doing things versus really improving on things that you you see work in some context i mean yeah i mean it's it's a bit of a repeat of what what i said earlier first you've got to really believe in it right it's not it's, you're not just going through the motions so we tend to spend you know when we started a company literally a year sometimes more two years just verifying that the model that the business that we're going after is real and it's going to succeed and often we'll start something, put it on ice, and wait for certain data to come out from competitors or clinical trial taking place or something else. So we we would rather be a lot, show a lot of patience um, in in this early investigational sort of effort where we're looking at IP, we're looking at technology, we're looking at business plan, we're looking at who's going to buy it, who, what's the exit look like, what's the regulatory. So we take a lot of time doing that homework, doing that diligence. Um, while prototyping it's not like it's just you know a paper exercise it's it's educated prototyping but it's an iterative process doing design work looking at the business model looking at the physician adoption looking at all aspects of success back and forth back and forth there's a point in time that we get the conviction this is this is going to be a success and then we at that point in time we go to external investors mm -hmm. so what we try to do is avoid going too soon and then realizing this is not a great opportunity and that that damages the reputation and just too much risk for our investors. Um, so we would rather take those losses early. So, you know, we have a perfect track record, but it's really not true. We have done plenty of projects that have been canceled. They just they're not part of what our investors have invested is. It was just my internal sort of funds for those activities in the early stage. So that's when we have our failures. This is where we try something. It doesn't look good. We stop it after two weeks. But we've also made errors and, and taken something a year or two and just realized that this is just not a good business. Yeah. And end up staying mostly in the cardiovascular space and ophthalmology now is because there's that competition that I was talking about earlier. There's a healthy, active MA sort of um, um, space taking place in cardiovascular. Uh, there's a lot of competition amongst the players. Usually these products get reimbursed eventually and, and usually they're life altering and so forth. So that you, you know, you have less uncertainty about some of these other things like reimbursement and so forth. Yeah. So that to me is really a critical part of what we do with this, this early work of homework. Um, and then once we were convinced because of the infrastructure that we have, we can really accelerate because we don't spend a lot of time putting infrastructure together. It's already there for us. And that's when we can, you know, get ahead of some of the competitors. And we don't mind starting late and not being necessarily the first, as long as we have something truly differentiated and that we think that it'll be very hard for others to leapfrog us. So uh, we don't mind coming from behind and leapfrogging uh, 
the pioneers in coming up with a second generation product. Um, but we have to make sure that we're sort of the last ones to do that. Um, that's that's a lot of what we try to do. Wonder as as you look back, you know, on some of the tech, and you, as you mentioned, the track record has been uh, incredible. Are there are there any ones that you you wish you actually had taken it further, you know, to the next stage as opposed to selling? I know that's a tough question because he had very successful exits, but I wonder if maybe reflect on that, and then and and then in your current uh, projects within Shifamed, you you do have the chance to get to a commercial stage in, in, in some of them, I believe. And I wonder how you feel about that as to, you know, maybe building companies that, that become standalone companies, or how do you feel about that in our, you know, in our ecosystem, you know, given, given the, the strength and power that large companies do have? Yeah. I mean, to me, once a product now it gets approved and it starts to, to needs to scale and commercialize, it's a different culture and it and you'll need a different team to really take it on at that point in time the commercialization effort and that mindset and and, and is is a is a different culture and and it, it has its own expertise and, and pitfalls and so forth and so i'm very interested in it as you could imagine um but also it extends the timelines mm -hmm. so as long the way I see it is if my investors are on board with that and at some point in time, they'll be very interested in that. Um, but I would say earlier in some of their funds, they want to see the exits mm -hmm. and that's going to drive the decision. Let's just, you know, keep it simple. Um, but as they've seen exits um, and now they're, you know, they may go for the bigger prize. They may have more patience to do uh, a longer play and commercialize some of those things before they exit. Um, so I think that it, it doesn't matter so much what I'm interested in ultimately, because you have to take care of your investors. Otherwise you're not gonna be able to raise money again. Mm -hmm. So, and you have to be in tune to your investors and what expectations you've set. If you intend to go and commercialize a company, you better have investors that are, understand what that road looks like and are willing to, to go all the way with you. Um, if you don't set it up that way, you better find a way to exit when they when they expected it. So to me, and those are sort of the big drivers of, of the decision. Am I interested in taking some of our companies commercial and going the long haul? Yes. You know, which one is the question and when is, is you know, is the other question. Um, so definitely interested. Um, but I think it's really about investors and timing and, and their interests. And that really is going to make the decision for you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, well, then one other aspect of Shifamed and just have, haven't been lucky enough to, to be on the campus and, and meet with some of the different companies. And I think about this in the context of our own portfolio, like, gosh, if, if, if we could have like a you know, retreat basically where we get all our CEOs together and they share the lessons they're learning and 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 all that. And and, and walking around Chief Med, it struck me. Well, you actually have that. You have this 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 place where there must be tremendous cross pollination of ideas as people think through each of their challenges. I wonder if you could comment uh, on that. Yeah. So. This is absolutely what we do. So we get together, we try to do it formally and informally. So all our companies are on one campus. We're in Silicon Valley, straddling the two cities, Los Gatos and Campbell. We're right next to Netflix. And each company has its own facility. So, so let me talk about that first for a little bit. 
So one thing we've learned from the EPI successful transition and some of the less successful ones that took place later is that when you keep the team whole post-transaction, and if they're well established in a facility that can support the activities for the foreseeable future, that can actually commercially produce product for the early stages, either clinical studies or early commercialization, that's a key to success. Because if you don't invest enough in a company and the facilities, equipment and the people, as soon as you do a, a transaction, they're going to come and take care of that investment they just made. And they're going to bring new people that don't know much. And it's going to distract the team and various assemblies are going to go all over the, the world between Ireland, you know, Mexico, Costa Rica, Minneapolis, whatever, to, to do that large scale production. And that really is super, super distracting. So one thing that we do and um, is that we establish big facilities more than what you need up front so that upon transaction, the team doesn't have to do much. They just keep doing the same thing. And the acquiring company can then duplicate what's been done and scale it in a, in a lower cost facility somewhere else. But they don't have to immediately do it. They can take their time. It could be a year, two or three or whatever. Um, and they're doing it at their own pace because they're really good at that. But if they're forced to do something quickly and grab folks from different divisions that don't even know each other and don't even know the product that they're about, they've just inherited, it's really, really hard uh, to really make that work. And then at that point in time, the original team is very distracted, starts leaving, and then um, and then things get delayed significantly. So what we've done um, at Chief Emmet is put a huge emphasis on our facilities. Mm -hmm. So as you walk around the campus, each company is literally autonomous. So if we sell a company within days, if from the internet to 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 anything, it's independent and and it doesn't it's unrelated to Chief Emmet within days. And that's how we've set them up um, now. What we do also is try to learn from each other as much as possible. So we meet the CEOs get together once a week together, and then they share everything that's useful that can be that can be shared. Right? Here's what we've learned from the FDA response. Here's what we've learned from this animal study. Here's what the investors said. Here's what this company is interested in buying and what not buying and so forth. So we are always sort of having uh, weekly conversations about this. And of course, then I meet as a chairman with each of the CEOs separately uh, and some of their staff uh, talking about the projects. So we're always in constant conversation and constant communication and hoping to avoid, you know, if somebody makes a mistake, let's make sure we all learn so that we don't essentially repeat a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and that's constantly going on. Uh, and I think it's a really important piece. The other thing we try to do also is encourage the team members to socialize, have drinks, have happy hour, and they naturally start forming bonds. And for example, we have series of meetings that take place and we on purpose avoid and, and don't want the CEOs to be present in those meetings where let's say the finance analysis people get together or the computation fluid dynamics people get together from different companies or the quality people get together or the manufacturing people get together and so forth or the cybersecurity in people, people interested in that getting together and, and maybe sometimes they cooperate because we can pull our efforts into one. Uh, we'll do that, for example, on the machine shop. We have an extensive machine shop. We have every company has its own machine shop, but if you're on top of it, we have a centralized machine shop mm. for special things. And so we're always sharing and learning from each other. Um, and we want people to, to help each other without necessarily having it be a formal structure who reports to who. So the machine shop folks can get together and talk to each other. They don't have to report to each other.
Um, So we would rather have it be a sort of collaborative, professional courtesy kind of a thing than a formal structure. We don't want to recreate a matrix organization. Uh, We want each team to be completely enabled. We're very happy to invest more and double up on pieces of equipment. It's cheap. It's the people that are more expensive and the delays that are much more expensive. So we've, we invest a lot in our facilities and our equipment so that people are truly enabled and truly autonomous. Yeah, that's powerful. And, you know, I, I am probably uh, don't have good enough visibility to other industries, but I've always felt like the med tech sector is one of the most challenging uh industrial sectors just because of how regulated it is and you know the payment system and you know all of that and i wonder you know maybe segueing into an area i'd love to for you to comment on and and yeah yeah actually um this is an an area it, it it's a journey that we've embarked on and it's really talking about manufacturing systems and quality systems and procurement systems and at one point when we started Chief Ahmed, we thought we were very clever. We said, you know, we're going to have a quality system. It'll be certified, audited. And we got our certificate from the author notified bodies and so forth. And then we started using it. One of the companies was ahead. So we got it set up for that. And mm-hmm. then we started using it for the other companies. And we quickly realized it was a huge mistake. Um, we probably didn't realize fast enough. But we, I think we ended up a year or two uh using one quality system across the portfolio. And that was a bit of a disaster because if a company is ready to commercialize, they have the the rules and the SOPs and the systems and the bureaucracy is very different, Mm. which then for the company that's not even done an animal study has to now live up to those standards, which makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, the whole point of a startup is to be efficient. Mm-hmm. And right, and if you're a startup, you you should have only the rules that you need at the time and the maturity of the product you're working on. You don't need to inherit the the the, the bureaucracy of a mature product. That doesn't make sense. I mean, that's the point of a startup, and that's why startups uh, get acquired by the big companies because that burden for the big companies is huge. Um, so how do we solve the problem? So what we ended up doing and what we're doing right now is actually developed software system. Um, that is customizable for each company. And it does the manufacturing systems, the procurement, the O's, receiving, and so forth. Uh, does the quality system, all the document control, all the, you know, the bill of materials, the costing, the, the LHRs, the training, calibration of equipment. All of that is a cloud-based system we've developed in- internally. And it's a company called Enlil. Once we embarked on that, we realized the opportunity is significant, and we decided to establish a company to do just that. And that's what our portfolio uses right now. It's this cloud-based system. It's one system for everything that's that the, the, the things that I mentioned. So it doesn't do HR, but it does everything else besides that. And it's uh, for startup companies, for small to medium-sized companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it will integrate ultimately with SAP and, and, and all those kinds of systems. Um, and so what we've done there is created sort of a library so that people can take an SOP from another company, modify it, and then it becomes available for others as well. Um, if you take and you developed a manufacturing process instruction for, say, how you run the braider, uh, it can be used. So not only is it a solution that's customizable uh, per company, per you know, because some companies have software, some don't. Some have electronics, some don't. Um, so you can customize it as you need to, um, but the, a lot of the content is, is available and can be shared by others and can be expanded and changed. 
uh, and the configuration for each company is different. Mm-hmm. So we've standardized on the tool, but not, and each company has its own version of it, right? So it's it's that's the way we we want to do. So we will allow the people to modify what uh, what they and, and operate their companies independently, but they have the ability to see what what the other companies have done, and so they can borrow if they yeah. wish, uh, and then make available to others uh, as they move fo- forward and develop their systems. Yeah. Oh, that makes a ton of sense. Maybe as we wrap up here, I'd love to hear sort of your view on kind of. What is the biggest challenge that we face today as a med tech sector? And and yeah, what what are the things that you kind of that keep you awake at night in our in our industry? I mean, I think that this is not I'm not going to say anything uh, revealing here. I think in the industry, everybody knows to me, the biggest problem in our industry is is fundraising. You know, our, there's a lot of VCs who have on and off sort of got into the space and gotten out of. It's really hard to fundraise. Um, and the timelines for startups and success is is long. It's a very long time. Um, there's a few huge exits every once in a while. I'd say our industry, relative to others like tech industry, we're more steady and more consistent outcomes, but we don't have the highs and lows. But often investors are looking for these super big hits. So they end up leaving our industry and 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 and, and leaves us, you know, have a hard time raising money. So to me, raising money is one of the biggest issues. Um uh, the the other issues are really related to reimbursement uh often and mm-hmm. and, and uh, regulatory fda and 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 the european i mean the you know they they have good you know they they mean well um and and they try to change things on the regulatory front to be more productive and, and safe and so forth but but it doesn't always translate to uh, all of these different regulatory bodies not all of them so the leadership may have certain intents but I think uh, you know the, the when you go down to the the examiners themselves, you know they're not necessarily always adopting the, the the you know they still have a bureaucracy that they have to deal with, and 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 you end up uh, not having very predictable outcomes of when you get approved and how many questions you're going to get. Um, the reimbursement is even more mystifying and and less predictable. Uh, so those are the big issues in our industry that are. You know, continue to be the challenge for us. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I don't, I don't. Doesn't matter how big of a company or successful you've been, we all go through this in these challenging sort of elements. Yeah, yeah. And I would argue the, you know, the two issues that you mentioned, kind of the consistency and the predictability, uh, the transparency of the regulatory process and reimbursement are probably the things also that can make uh, the availability of capital more scarce, right? It is a tough, it's a tough business. And, um, and if you, you know, and if you have an industry, which is predicated more on kind of the multi hundred million dollar exits, as opposed to multi billion dollar exits, you know, sometimes the capital doesn't see that risk reward. Uh, So I think solving, you know, continuing to improve upon the regulatory pathway and streamlining it, making it predictable and and then figuring out different ways on the you know on the re- reimbursement front hopefully will bring a steadier flow of capital i don't know if you agree with with that linkage no no i agree i mean i think it's investors are looking for exits right if it's going to take they if they thought they could you know get an exit in three to five years and now they're not going to get until five to eight years that's a problem and, and those problems mm-hmm. are coming from what you said challenges with reimbursement challenges on, on the regulatory front the ability to forecast when you're going to get certain things done how long what kind of a clinical trial you have to do how long it takes to enroll and so forth a huge problem 
uh, in the clinical studies is these contracts. In the U.S., it takes forever to get contracts going with hospitals. And yeah. that's a disaster that stretches the timelines dramatically. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there's so much that we have to do. I mean, just think about animal studies that we have to do. Often you have to repeat them because it's not GLP. Like, mm-hmm. you know, how productive are some of those sort of requests? Debatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when you add all these things up, uh, it's a huge burden. And it's not surprising that many investors are doing other things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a good challenge for us to keep trying to figure out uh, with all the different stakeholders. And uh, Amr, I can't thank you enough for for taking the time today to be on the podcast. Uh, every time we uh, get a chance to chat, I learn a lot. And today was no different. So thank you so much for, uh, for being on uh, on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate the time uh, spent together today.